Sir Valper, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Monday edition of Fangraphs Audio, as he is on most Mondays, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. This episode begins with a discussion of a piece written by Cameron this Monday on the controversial call by umpire Dale Scott that led to an unexpected triple play for the Los Angeles Dodgers in the ninth inning of their game against the San Diego Padres. Cameron explains why he views that play as a microcosm of baseball's need to re-examine its umpiring standards, with a particular emphasis on the inclusion of more technology uh, for umpires. That game, as mentioned, involved the Los Angeles Dodgers, also known as the 9-1 Los Angeles Dodgers. I asked Cameron, and he tells me whether the Dodgers record has more to do with their true talent or has to do with the fact that they've played the Padres and the Pirates over those 10 games. Cameron and I discuss what stats are and are not reliable at this stage in the season, and what that has to do with the early season efforts of Matt Kemp and Tim Lincecum. And finally, we look at Bobby Valentine's comments about Kevin Euclid from Sunday, an attempt to have as reasonable a discussion about them as is possible. It's managing editor Dave Cameron, it's Fangraphs Audio, and it begins right now. Because they are, well, I mean, Matt Kemp himself is better than like a yeah. dozen teams right now. Right. Well, they played seven games against the Padres and three against the Pirates. <laughs> well, there's that. There's there's that <laughs> angle too. <laughs> um, so so Cameron, with regard to this Dale Scott situation, well, how about this? How about could you just give us a, a summary of what happened first? Yeah. So ninth inning of the Dodgers Padres game yesterday, uh, tied at four. The Padres get two batters on against Javi Guerra and nobody out, and uh, Bud Black decides that his cleanup hitter is not a very good hitter, which is kind of true. Hey, Guzman is not your typical cleanup hitter. Uh, so he calls for a bunt, which, in general, we're not big fans of the bunt. But in a tie game in the ninth inning with runners at first and second, nobody out, and a guy up from hitting 130 on the season, I mean, not that you should read in the small sample sizes, but, you know, this is not uh, Jose Bautista at the plate. Laying down a butt isn't the worst call ever. Playing for one run here gets you the lead. Uh, it's at least defensible. Uh, so Guzman goes to bunt, even though he's not much of a bunter. Uh, Guerra throws a pitch that would have hit him in the chest had it not hit his bat. Uh, in the process of spinning out of the way, uh, Guzman's bat makes contact with the ball. It goes down into foul territory. Dale Scott raises his hands in the air. At first, it's unclear whether he's just signaling that, but he, uh, that Guzman was not hit by a pitch or whether he's just getting out of the way. Um, but the ball rolls into foul territory behind the plate and then rolls forward. As it crosses the plate, Scott again waves his arm in the clear foul ball signal. None of the Padres move. Uh, they're all just standing on their bases. A.J. Ellis picks up the ball in fair territory. He starts a triple play. The inning is over. Scott rules that it was a fair ball despite his two foul signals. Uh, and the Dodgers go on to win in the bottom of the ninth inning. Yeah. Okay. So, so first of all, just describing this, um, and perhaps Ellis did not have the same sort of intent here as AJ Przinsky did. Um, when the, I forget when this exactly happened, but do you remember there was a yeah a fam- in the World Series, yeah. right? Famously, a call where um, where Przinsky ran on on a quote unquote drop third strike, even though there was no signal yeah. from the umpire. Right. Uh, so you essentially have a player playing through to the end of the play. And, to, and uh, you mentioned this in your piece, too, um, in A.J. Ellis' defense, I guess. He couldn't see Dale Scott. 
Correct. Ellis was in front of Dale Scott, and from what we can tell, Dale Scott didn't say anything. There was no verbal communication. Uh, so A.J. Ellis had no way of knowing that Dale Scott was blowing the play dead. A.J. Ellis did everything right. And, you know, to be fair to the Dodgers, they did everything right. They didn't do anything wrong. This is uh, solely Dale Scott's mistake. The Dodgers weren't pulling any kind of deception. Uh, they made a heads-up uh, fundamental baseball play, and they got three outs for it. But now your proposal, Cameron, if I'm not mistaken, your proposal is to, at some point, simply replay the ninth inning. From the point of Jesus Guzman's foul ball, yes. So my contention is that Dale Scott's original call should stand. I know uh, there's some interpretation of it in the comments where people are saying that I'm trying to reverse Dale Scott's call. I'm not trying to reverse an umpire's call at all. I'm saying that Dale Scott called the ball foul, and when Dale Scott called the ball foul, that play ceased to happen, and everything that happened after that is irrelevant. And from that play... Uh, from that point on, the rest of the game is contaminated by that play. So uh, the fact that the inning ended and the Padres no longer got to bat in a situation where they should have had, uh, you know, two strikes or, you know, Guzman should have still been up with two men on and nobody out and a chance to take the lead, Dale Scott's poor judgment decision, uh, not even really a judgment, his poor decision to continue on with a play that he'd already called dead essentially ended the Padres' chance of scoring and, uh, it really, in my view, invalidates the outcome of the game. Now, for you, with regard to your proposal, what are the odds actually that that would happen? Zero percent. Uh, Bud Black did not file a protest, which is one of the uh, necessary steps in order to have a game even be reviewed by the league. So uh, the league isn't going to take any action because the Padres haven't asked the, Padre, the league to take any action. And even if they had, this isn't something Major League Baseball uh, is prone to do. They did it with George Brett's pine tar home run back in 1985, but this is, uh, you know, that's 26 years ago at this point, 27 years ago, and that's the one that I can point to. So uh, this isn't something Major League Baseball would have overturned. I was arguing that this is just something they should do, not something that they will do. Hey, so this is, uh, so so are you are you telling me, Cameron, are you just are you just rousing rabble? Is that what you're doing? Or are you attempting to sort of accomplish something else? You know, I, I mean, I think that in this day and age, with the technology we have, we just shouldn't be throwing our hands in the air and saying, well, you know, that's unfortunate. Uh, there's a real chance, especially with the second wild card, uh, that one game could decide the National League West. I mean, the Giants and Diamondbacks are not world beaters. The Dodgers are off to a really good start. Whether they're that good or not, it doesn't really matter. They're 9-1. and one, So they put themselves in a position to be contenders, especially if their new ownership goes out and spends like crazy this summer. Um, there's a real chance that the Dodgers could make the playoffs by one game. And if this is that one game, uh, that's a that's a tragedy. I mean, I can't imagine being a San Francisco Giants fan or an Arizona Diamondbacks fan, and you end up with the same record or one game worse than the Dodgers, and they make the playoffs and you don't deal with this. I mean, that's just not something that Major League Baseball should be putting themselves in a situation to have to live with. Well, and I guess um, um, I guess it, it, whether we use the word tragedy or not, um, there's probably a, a case to be made too. Um, that it could be worth a lot of money for one team or the other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a ton at stake in terms of uh, financial resources from making the playoffs. Uh, you get giant season ticket spikes the next year, especially if your team does well and goes deep into the playoffs. Um, you know, I think this is the kind of thing that Major League Baseball needs to protect. And, you know, there are some circumstances that you cannot avoid. And I'm not saying that every bad call by an umpire should be overturned by the league and that we should, you know, begin policing every umpire call at the league level and replaying games on bad calls where the outcome is, is you know, in question. But this, to me, this is not changing an umpire's call. This is 
saying that the call that the umpire actually made should stand, and I don't think that's all that controversial to stand. What would it actually take, do you think, or what will it actually take? Is it just sort of, is it is it a gradual movement towards the greater role of technology in the game? Does it require a sort of critical mass of, of you know, voices, you know, perhaps like yours, other people in the media, and then perhaps people within baseball for for the league to actually make, um, you know, even even sort of greater um, overtures towards technology and greater movement towards technology in the game. What what will it practically require? I don't think people like me can really have that big of an effect. Uh, you know, I think realistically, if this was going to become an issue, uh, the Padres would have need to file a protest last night. And to make real waves and to really make Major League Baseball look at this issue, uh, if that protest was denied, they would like have to refuse to take the field. <laughs> like I think that an organization could put this uh, really to a test and say, "Look, we filed a protest. We've got evidence on our side. It's ridiculous that you didn't, you know, overturn this call. It's obvious that Dale Scott called this ball foul twice. Um, we're just not going to play again until you issue uh, a correct ruling or one that we're more in favor of." Obviously, that's a drastic step, and I can't see any major league team doing that. Uh, you know, pissing off Bud Feely is not something ownership generally likes to do, uh, especially considering how well the financial uh, state of major league baseball is doing right now. So, I, I don't think that we're going to anywhere near that kind of state. The Padres don't expect to contend this year. You know, they might have lost the game anyway. This isn't the kind of situation where, you know, a team is willing to make that kind of stance. But if this had happened in October in a playoff game. Uh, and it was the Yankees and Red Sox, I can't imagine either of those teams would have taken this lying down. And so, uh, you know, my guess is that at some point the pressure is going to have to come from a team. Right, and then in a team that is sort of in a position where where if it if it makes a push towards greater inclusion of, of technology, well, in a general sense, I guess, but but through specifically through an event where it says, oh, uh, this is not acceptable, this call, and we're going to fight it because there's a lot more at stake than, you know, just an early regular season game, you're saying that would be the catalyst for such a change? Yeah, I think so. I think it would have to be a somewhat powerful franchise and a highly televised event, um, you know, national news, the kind of thing that would lead the news cycle the next day, uh, where it would be a real embarrassment for Major League Baseball, and they just couldn't afford to ignore it. This they can afford to ignore and just say, you know, it's one game, we're sorry, uh, deal with it. You know, this happened in the World Series, and it affected the outcome of the championship, uh, Major League Baseball would not look the other way. And you know, my argument is if they wouldn't look the other way then, they shouldn't look the other way now. All right. You've, ha- you've said your piece, Dave Cameron. Does it feel good? Or- uh, yeah, I mean, I, I could you know, keep ranting about this for hours, but it's not going to do anyone any good. So let's talk baseball. All right. Well, let's talk baseball. This game, uh, what, what perhaps if, um, if this calls attention to something else, it's the fact that, well, it's, it's the two things. It, it calls attention to the fact that the Dodgers – are off to the best start in Major League. I think they're 9-1 and one as we speak right now. Um, Correct. It also may or may not call attention to the fact that the Dodgers have played a lot of games against the Padres. And the Pirates. That's the entirety of their schedule. Seven games against the Padres and three games against the Pirates. Okay, so, um, so question. Uh, generally speaking, is the Dodgers' record, their 9-1 record so far, is it more a reflection of their true talent, or is it more a reflection... Of their the true talent of their opponents, uh, the latter and easily. I mean, I, I think the Padres are in contention for the worst team in baseball this year. Uh, that's really, really a bad team. The Astros are probably worse, uh, but it's you know uh, the Padres are not good. So seven games against a 
really bad opponent, and then three games against a certainly a bottom 15, probably a bottom 10 team in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, that's uh, this is the easiest schedule you could possibly draw up coming out of the season. So I think if you said, okay, any major league team, even a 500 quality team, is going to get 10 games against the against the Padres and the, and the Pirates in this order. Um, you know, they're probably going to win at least six, maybe seven, maybe eight of these games. So the fact that the Dodgers are nine and one, they didn't beat expectations by all that much. They beat expectations by a little bit, uh, in part because Dale Scott helped them out. Or they have vastly overperformed what we would expect based on their schedule. Right. Now, um, re- regardless of, of whether or not the Dodgers are a 9-1 team, and, and you're making the case, and, it, and it's an easy case to believe uh, that they're probably not, there's also a very good chance that Matt Kemp uh, is, is uh, well, the best player in the National League or among the top two or three. Uh, so far this season, he's been worth, um, uh, by our early season to- uh, numbers, he's been worth 1.2 wins above replacement, which is, as good, if not better than, about a dozen teams. Um, he's hit six home runs. Again, uh, to be fair, all against uh, all against the Padres. And he has a 310 WRC+, plus, meaning he's approximately uh, 210% better than league average. Yeah, Matt Kemp's good. Uh, you know, I think uh, he's been tabbed as a regression candidate by people like me uh, for having a high batting average in balls in play the last, couple, you know, last year and uh, an offensive approach that wouldn't be able to sustain the kind of hitter he was last year. I still don't believe that to be true, uh, but he's really strong, and he can hit the ball really far. And so when Matt Kemp is uh, you know, turning on mediocre fastballs, which the Padres throw a lot of, and hitting the ball to the moon, he's a fantastic player. So he's going to keep doing this all year, obviously. I mean, you can basically do an entire podcast of this guy won't keep doing this all year, this team won't keep doing this all year. Uh, but I don't think Matt Kemp a bad player, um, you know, and uh, – He's certainly one of the league's best, and with Kemp and Kershaw, the Dodgers have the foundation of a winner in place. Uh, they just need, you know, more than two really good players, which is what they have right now. Now, I, I don't know to what degree he showed this last year, um, but I do know, or at least I'm rather sure, I think that perhaps all of Matt Kemp's home runs thus far have either been to center or right field. Yeah, he's got a lot of opposite field power, which I think is one of the things that. Uh, um, is predictive and shows growth. Uh, this isn't something that I can empirically prove yet, but it's something I'm working on and I have a pet theory about is young guys with opposite field power, I believe, often grow into more complete overall power hitters because they're not fully developed and they can eventually learn how to pull the ball and still hit for power to right field or the opposite field. Uh, so Kemp's the guy who I think we probably haven't seen the best of in terms of power. He's a, he could be a 40 homer guy, uh, maybe not every year, but you know, many years. He's even the elite power hitter. Um, the, the contact skills aren't fantastic, and he doesn't walk enough. But you know, I think that there's no reason Matt Kemp can't be the National League version of Josh Hamilton. Are there any other players that that sort of come to mind for you who have showed that um, that ability to go to opposite field early on? If if maybe um, even if maybe uh, their overall numbers didn't didn't reveal the sort of uh, player they'd be later on. Yeah, I think Joey Votto is actually a really good example of this. In the minor leagues, he was not a Super highly ranked prospect. He was, uh, you know, a, a good prospect that he was considered to have a limited ceiling because people weren't sure how much power he was going to hit because he drove the ball the opposite field almost exclusively. In the minors, he almost never pulled the ball. Uh, he was left center, left field, um, you know, 20, 25 home run guy and 
scouts question whether he'd ever be able to pull the ball with authority. He gets to the major leagues and shows that he can do it. Now he's one of the best hitters in baseball. So um, I think there are examples of guys like that who, you know, they show power to the opposite field, which shows a lot of natural strength. You, not just anyone can hit for power to the opposite field. You have to be really strong in order to do that. Um, and then as he learned to pull the ball, he became a more complete power hitter. And so, um, again, this isn't something that we have enough data on or have uh, – you know, we, like we only have batted ball data uh, for the major leagues back to 2002. We don't have it for the minor leagues. Um, so this isn't something that I can say demonstrably I'm absolutely correct. It's just something that I have a pet theory on. And I think with more time and more evidence, we might find this to be true. All right. Yeah, that, that, that's fun to that's fun to think about. Uh, and it's sort of uh, – I don't know if you get this, um, but when a new idea when, – when I sort of come across a new idea, whether finding a pattern in, in um, you know, a couple different players' stats – or you know, reading a tweet about it, uh, I always like it's it's fun to go to the um, the leaderboards, and this is not actually a shameless plug, although it's turning into one uh, for the custom leaderboards of Fangraphs. Uh, but just to like construct some some leaderboards based on on that pet theory. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the things that uh, Fangraphs has tried to do is give us the ability to look up stuff like this. Is when you see something that you think you. You observe. We want to be able to provide the data to confirm or deny its existence. Now, just in, uh, this is the last thing I'll mention about the Los Angeles Dodgers, but also um, it does appear in the early going, and again, um, I guess with um, the, the caveats about about um, opposition quality at this point, but it does appear as though Andre Ethier is a little bit more like Andre Ethier of two, three, four years ago than he was uh, than he was last year. Well, yeah, I mean, last year it certainly wasn't healthy. And so, uh, you know, we don't want to read too much into, you know, 10 games performance in, in any situation. But there are times when a guy is clearly not healthy one year and shows up and is healthy the next year and it doesn't take a huge sample size to figure out that this guy is, you know, more nimble than he was before, is moving better. Uh, you know, I mean, things like that can, can be obvious much quicker than, you know, batting average or even, you know, isolated slugging or some other metric that we think of as a, as a decent measure of talent. Uh, and he seems to be moving, uh, fairly well this year. He's a, uh, free agent at the end of the year, so he's certainly motivated in order to have a really good year and come into camp in good shape and make sure he rehabbed, uh, as well as possible because he's got a big paycheck coming if he has a good year. Now, you mentioned um, about those sorts of things that become reliable early on um, in terms of um, statistics. Can you give us a sense of, of what, what those things are and, and the other sort of stats that we should maybe not read too closely to, into? Yeah, so in looking at it, I actually wrote a ESPN last week uh, about contact rate and how that is the fastest thing to stabilize. It has the highest year-to-year correlation of any stat uh, for hitters in baseball, um, and it's it, – Correlates or it stabilizes very very quickly. So you're just not going to see a guy like Adam Dunn uh, or Ryan Howard or Jim Tomey uh, have a lot of contact in any sample. I mean, you know, maybe one game or something, but over the course of a week or two, it's going to become very obvious that you know Jeff Kepinger and Juan Pierre never strike out, and Adam Dunn strikes out a lot. And uh, it, you don't even need to look at strikeout rate. Like breaking it down at the swing rate um, is is even more effective. And so we can look at number of swings and number of times they put the bat on the ball. This is the kind of thing that comes. Uh, pretty obvious pretty quickly. And so we can look at, you know, changes in swing rate um, prior years. Even in the first month of the season, uh, the ESPN, I showed that, you know, if you took prior year full season contact rate uh, and then the first month's uh, contact rate for any player, you could predict uh, very, very accurately full season contact rate by splitting them up 50-50. So you take 50% prior year contact rate, 50% first month contact rate, and that would... Uh, 
give you something very close to full year contact rate for almost every player in baseball. And that's just not the case with, you know, even walk rate or um, pitches for plate appearance. I mean, these things, you know, they stabilize quicker than batting average or ERA, certainly. But uh, the swinging uh, stats, you know, swing percentage, contact percentage, these are the things that um, can become true much, much faster than a result-oriented uh, metric. Now, it, that's for the batters. And on the pitcher side, of course, um, I believe uh, it makes sense uh, that velocity is is the thing that becomes uh, reliable most quickly. Is that right? Right. And, uh, you know, the thing that you'll notice in all these metrics, swing rate, contact rate, uh, these are the things that have the least to do with any other outside variable. So velocity has absolutely nothing to do with the hitter at the plate. Um, you know, pitcher can either throw hard or he can't. Uh, it doesn't really matter, you know, uh, who he's facing. Park effects don't matter all that much. Um, same thing with contact rate. Uh, it matters a little bit more who the pitcher is, but for the most part, a guy who can put the bat on the ball uh, against anyone can do it, you know, against any pitcher in baseball. Uh, and, you know, his, the frequency with which he flings is going to be dictated by, you know, his approach to the plate much more so than the types of pitches he's thrown. So all these things don't really have a lot of interplay with defense or uh, opposition. So um, velocity is, is certainly the one that stabilizes the most quickly for pitchers. It's not perfect. We've seen guys who, you know, are throwing in the low 90s in April and start throwing in the mid-90s in June. We know that velocity does increase as the year goes on. Uh, so you wouldn't look at a pitcher's velocity in April and say this is his true talent velocity, but it's going to stabilize a lot faster than almost anything else. Now, one player who's who's showed decreased velocity uh, through the first uh, his first two starts of the season, neither of which has been particularly successful, uh, is right-hander Tim Lincecum for the San Francisco Giants. Uh, strangely, with Lincecum, the velocity is down by about uh, two miles per hour, and of course, you know there are obviously um, measurement issues. Could be measurement issues there, I guess. Um, his velocity is down, and he's allowed a bunch of runs. But at the same time, his component stats, the things, you know, w- that are, you know, um, I guess beyond vo- something like velocity, the things that become predictive most quickly, those are actually improved over his uh, full season last year. So where is, wh- what does all that tell us about Linscombe at this point? Is he someone who's gotten unlucky, um, or is he someone who happens to be uh, throwing slower and the results are showing up um, and not necessarily being revealed in the component stats? Yeah, I mean, I think this is one area that's uh, a little bit of an unknown. Uh, there has been some research shown that says guys who end up being injured and go on the disabled list in their, you know, last few starts before they go on the disabled list and their injury is revealed, their batting average on ball at play is much higher than you would expect, uh, given their career. And so it could be that whatever injury that they eventually put them on the disabled list, uh, led them to being much more hittable in those starts. And so that's something that would make sense. Certainly you could think about, you know, if you're compensating for an injury and you, uh, you know, change your arm slot and you don't have as good a location as you did previously, uh, it could affect the uh, ability of the hitters to put the bat on the ball and, you know, how hard they hit the ball and where they hit the ball. And so when we talk about, you know, true talent bat, you know, being centered around 290, 300, and there not being a lot of variance one way or another for most pitchers, that's based on the selection of people who've already been selected to be good enough to throw in the major leagues. And so if you're dealing with a pitcher who has some sort of injury, uh, not that we're saying Lincecum does, but, you know, hypothetically, if a pitcher has an injury that's going to affect that, that he might not necessarily be part of that sample that would fit into the traditional pattern. So I don't think we can just look at every pitcher and say, his velocity is down and his batting is up, therefore he's been just as good and he's been unlucky. It's possible that um, he's throwing pitches in such a way that are and better velocity. But at the same time, uh, you would also note that 
He's also thrown pitches in such a way that he could strike out about 25% of the batters he faces and only walk 7%. Yeah, and, you know, this is one of the things Felix Hernandez is like, uh, his strikeout rate's fine, his walk rate's fine, um, his velocity is way down. He's averaging 91 miles an hour on his fastball. You know, this is a guy who came in the league throwing 97. Uh, he was throwing 94 as recently as last year. Um, his velocity is way down, but his secondary stuff is so good that his uh, contact rates and strikeout rates are all still fine because he's getting those pitches on the changeup and the slider and the curveball. Uh, it's the fastball that's really missing the top end speed. And so same thing with Linscombe. Linscombe's changeup is uh, absolutely fantastic. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. He's still throwing that thing a lot and getting a lot of swings and misses with it. The question is, is the fastball, uh, is whatever is wrong with Linscombe, if there is something wrong with Linscombe, only affecting the fastball and not the other pitches, which is possible. And uh, it's not something that we can conclude and say absolutely the high ERA and the hits uh, should lead us to believe that something's wrong. This could easily be a small sample thing that evens itself out. Um, but I think anytime you see a corresponding significant drop in velocity at the same time there's a, a high rate of hits allowed, um, the Angels just cut Rich Thompson, who's been a pretty good reliever for them, because uh, you know he's gotten bombed in his first few starts, even though it's all hits allowed and home runs. So his velocity is down three miles an hour. They clearly think they see something that says, this guy who's been good for us is no longer going to be good for us going forward, so we're going to cut him now. Um, it's possible that there's something to this. It's one of those areas that we can't just say, you know, well, it's just high batters, it's going to regress. Okay. And uh, I want to let you go because uh, you're very clearly in a wind tunnel right now, and I, I understand you're probably conducting some important research. Uh, and of course, you do live uh, close to a major research institution in Winston-Salem, uh, North Carolina. However, uh, I do want to ask you about the Boston Red Sox, and in particular, um, comments by Bobby Valentine, I guess, Sunday, Sunday night, Sunday sometime. Yeah. He said something to the effect of that he's not sure if – he's not convinced necessarily that Kevin Euclid, I guess, cares as much about the game that he's showing, uh, that whether it's via his body language or the fact that he's not throwing his helmet after he strikes out. Uh, he's, he's questioning Kevin Euclid's commitment. Uh, meanwhile, Kevin Euclid and teammate Dustin Pedroia are both uh, curious about about those comments. Uh, I'm curious to to sort of see. I mean, at Fairgrounds, we sort of strive uh, to to be responsible in our commentary, and yet um, Bobby Valentine, you you would at the same time you'd think that those statements could have an effect on a team. Yeah, I, I have to wonder at what point the Boston Red Sox just admits they made a mistake and get rid of Bobby Valentine. I'm, an, I'm not one who thinks that managers have a drastic impact on wins and losses or that you know who your manager is is going to determine your fate one way or another, but I do think that there's something to be said for your players respecting your manager. And I can see a situation in which uh, if I was Kevin Euclid and Dustin Pedroia and somebody who had respect for Kevin Euclid and disagreed with Valentine's assertion, especially if I was around him every day and saw evidence to the contrary, that this whole scenario, in addition to you know Bobby Valentine, just his history and some of the things we did in spring training, uh, this would make me question whether this was a guy I wanted to play for. And when that becomes an issue, I think at that point the major league team is uh, justified in firing a guy. Whether the team's winning or losing, it has nothing to do with the Red Sox slow start or um, any of that kind of stuff. I, I don't think any of that should matter all that much. But if Bobby Valentine is going to make public comments that undermine his ability to get his players to want to play for him, then he shouldn't be the manager of the Boston Red Sox. I forget, when he was with the Mets, I mean, is this is this kind of par for the course, or is this... Has he even been more Bobby Valentine-ish than before? 
Uh, it's hard to say if this has uh, been more or if it's just more media scrutiny now that he's in Boston. And obviously, with last year's collapse, there's been a lot of focus on the manager. But he was known for this kind of, uh, you know, blustery, talking to the media too much, uh, self-promotion. This is a reputation he had coming into Boston. Is the guy who just ran his mouth and, uh, you know, he had already stirred up stuff with the Red Sox and Yankees in spring training and, um, you know, his comments about Daniel Bard and whether, you know, uh, he was on the same page as the GM. Like, this is uh, multiple incidences in the course of less than a couple months. Um, and it goes along with what was kind of expected based on his previous history to suggest that this isn't just Bobby Valentine made a mistake. And, you know, like, the, this is, uh, you know, Ozzie Guillen saying something dumb about Fidel Castro. Of course Ozzie Guillen said something dumb. We shouldn't have been surprised that Ozzie Guillen said something dumb. That's what he does. Uh, Bobby Valentine talks too much. Yep, that's who he is. And, you know, Maybe the Red Sox underestimated the negative uh, repercussions that can come with having a manager who talks too much in Boston. It's it's just so curious because you you also mentioned that Daniel Bard situation. If I'm not mistaken, he said at one point that the reason that uh, Alfredo Aceves wasn't going to be in the rotation is because that that was the front office's decision. Something to that effect. Yeah. Why would he do that? Uh, it's unclear. Like I think you would need a therapist to. <laughs> analyze the motivations of a, a guy in the public scrutiny, um, really heavily in the scrutiny of the media, considering Boston's poor start to the season and, you know, the whole debacle that happened last year at the end of the season with Boston and just the fact that it's the Boston Red Sox. What would motivate a person like that to go tell reporters that he thinks one of his players is not playing the right way without talking to him first? I mean, like this, I could understand if that guy was, you know, uh, Milton Bradley or something, and he had just repeatedly not shown up for practice and was skipping games and, you know, uh, doing things that were obviously disruptive and his teammates had turned against him. Uh, maybe at that point you say something in the media, but a guy who's been a vocal team leader who's uh, played hurt and, you know, um, been a part of, of uh, successful teams in Boston and had been considered a, a core player on this roster, to call him out publicly without talking to him uh, a question of effort. It just, I, like, I have no understanding of what leadership books Bobby Valentine has read that would make him think that's a good idea. Yeah. Although you do that quite a bit with the, the Fangraphs writers. There's a lot of uh, well, public, public, I, publicly calling I, I think, Yeah, I think you're uh, referring to uh, you specifically, perhaps? Oh, I, I'm just saying generally. I don't know. Yeah. Generally. Uh, well, I would say that, you know, the motivation of a, uh, baseball writer, probably a little different than the motivation of a professional athlete. Uh, so to get, you know, you bunch of slackers writing every day. You don't think requires I, some, you don't think I give 110% Cameron? Uh, well, I just think that maybe your 110% is less than a baseball player's 110%. Well, I, we're, we're going to see. We're going to see what happens now. That's what we're going to see. <laughs> well, see, this is now. Now I've motivated you to prove me wrong. Yeah. And maybe that's what Bobby Valentine was going for. I just think that in this situation, that might not have been the right call. Yeah. Well, all right, uh, Dave Cameron. Uh, that's going to conclude uh, this uh, your your Monday appearance on Fangraphs Audio. Fantastic. I, I'm glad I could uh, uh, be done offending people now. Yeah. Okay, very good. Uh, so that has been our managing editor, Dave Cameron. I am and will continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Audio.